If you would please, if you'd open your Bibles to Mark's Gospel, we're going to finish out Mark chapter 12. You should, uh, if you uh, grab a pew Bible, you should open to 849. There's our passage, Mark 12, beginning at verse uh, 38. Jake will be preaching uh, next week, and we will dive into Mark chapter 13 uh, the week after. Little theologians, uh, you know what binoculars are, right? I think in Alaska, I really, I, I think, are, are they called glasses, glass? Do, do really out, true outdoorsmen call them glasses? Binoculars, you know what they are. There's going to be uh, two scenes in this passage in which Jesus has us watching people, watching scribes, and then watching this uh, poor widow. And it's almost as if Jesus is asking us to put on binoculars and watch and notice the scribes, notice this widow. But really what Jesus is showing us is our own heart. I'd like for you to draw for me a pair of binoculars that enable you to look at your own heart. I'm not sure how those binoculars would work. But draw the binoculars that will help you look, not at the scribes and not at the widow, but at your own heart. This passage is Mark chapter 12, beginning at verse 38. If you would please join me in prayer before we read this passage. Father, we ask that by your Spirit you'd increase our thankfulness for your word, that you speak to us, that you make yourself known. And we have taken this word for granted pray, Father, that you would speak to us now by your Holy Spirit and that your word would carry us into the week and in that week that we would continue to be thankful for your word and read it. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Mark chapter 12, beginning at verse 38. And in his teaching he said, Beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who were contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is the word of our Lord. In the passage that we heard from earlier in our worship service uh, about uh, King Jehoash, I'm, I'm sure that sounded a bit strange uh, to you. That scene uh, took place about 800 years before Jesus is in the temple uh, with his disciples. But that scene about King Jehoash, it's about a box in the temple square that was meant for uh, collecting the offerings that people would bring, but they're specific offerings. They're uh, offerings that would go in that box and then be retrieved by the priest to be used uh, to uh, care for the temple. The, the Levites, they take that money, and that money would take care of the maintenance of the temple. 
See, the Levites, they didn't have land to take care of. That's what they took care of. And every Jew was to give whatever amount their heart prompted them to give. I mean, that's what God's Word says, 2 Kings 12. And the people did give, apparently. But the Levites were embezzling the money. So the money actually wasn't going to the repair and the maintenance of the temple. So that was in uh, almost a thousand years before Jesus, but there really isn't that much different in Jesus' day. The temple included priceless assets of gold and silver, uh, warehouses of flour, oil, incense, and other valuable goods. Uh, the religious leaders, they uh, collect the people's money. They manage the accounts payable. They were very powerful. And, of course, to no one's surprise, they were also, were also pretty wealthy. What was happening in the day of King Jehoash was happening in Jesus' day. And I say that because this passage, it, it looks and it feels a bit like a commentary on uh, the bad ethics of people in charge. And I don't want us to jump onto that bandwagon uh, too quickly. Uh, to be sure, there are scribes here in this passage that are uh, motivated by selfishness. And that motivation of selfishness contrasts with the virtuous widow who's giving uh, everything that she has. The scribes, they're filling up their own interests and the widow is emptying her interests. But don't too quickly think that this is a passage that says, don't be like the scribes be like the widow. Not so fast. Jesus is not so much warning us to look at the heart of a scribe or even the heart of the widow. He actually wants us to look at the heart of the scribes and to look at the heart of the widow, but he's inviting us to look at our own heart, and he's inviting us to look at his heart. He's about to voluntarily submit himself to the cross. He's going to be crucified in a matter of days. And he's crucified in order to pay for the wickedness of our hearts. And this passage, well, it's about the heart of Jesus, who gives everything that he has, even his own life, to deliver your heart from the punishment that it deserves and to deliver my heart from the punishment it deserves. Just two main points in this passage, verses 38 through 40. Jesus is asking his disciples to look at the scribes, but not just look at the scribes. Jesus is saying, look at them to see yourself. Verses 38 through 40, look at them to see yourself. And then beginning at verse 41, Jesus is going to say to his disciples, look at her to see me. Look at her to see me. So beginning at verse 38, I mean, there isn't a, a strong indication of context, but if we jump all the way back to Mark chapter 11, verse 27, uh, it seems like a long time ago, but it really was just earlier in the morning when Jesus and his disciples first arrived at the temple. And we get what's happening there if we go back to 11, verse 27, and it's still happening here in this passage. Jesus, he's walking in the temple, he's teaching. We find uh, earlier in chapter 11 that there are chief priests and scribes and elders, and they're watching Jesus. In this passage, Jesus watching them. But they've been watching Jesus. Uh, they have been gathering around him, Pharisees, Herodians, Sadducees. And as they gather around him, we know their purpose. We know that they're plotting against him. We know that their desire is to arrest him. No, no mystery at all. These guys are dangerous. They've been dangerous all day. 
But Jesus, he says to his disciples, beware, which literally in the Greek, it just means look, see, pay attention. And Jesus doesn't want his disciples to just pay attention to anything as if Jesus is afraid of what these men might have the power to do. Uh, Jesus, he wants his disciples to pay attention to that which you don't always see, their hearts, their motives. Notice in verse 38 that Jesus says that the scribes like to do certain things. You see that in verse 38. They like to do these things. Walk around, have the best seats, make long prayers. But that word in verse 38 for liking to do something, it could be better understood as desiring to do something. They long to do this. They wish for this. This is the very aim that they are pointed to with all of their lives. I think the King James Version is appropriate uh, by translating this like to something a little bit more powerful. The King James Version says that these are the things that they love. You know, Jesus has already told one scribe about ten verses earlier uh, that God wants people who love Him and Him alone with every fiber of their being, heart, soul, mind, strength. All of our thoughts, all of our words, all of our actions should be motivated by an ardent love for God. Jesus tells that scribe that God doesn't want loveless offerings and sacrifices. He wants heart, soul, mind, and strength, everything. But look at these scribes. What do they desire? They don't desire God, but with heart, soul, mind, and strength, seemingly, they desire three other things. And I'm grouping these things as best I can. Preachers can't shake this by always making things uh, alliterate. I, I don't know why. There's perhaps medicine that I could take to help me. But there's three things. They all begin with a P. What do these men love, desire, long for? They want praise. They want power. And they want perfection. Now look what Jesus uh, says about them. Verse 38 They like, or they desire, or they love to walk around in robes. Just think about robes that are flowing. They like to walk around in robes. They like to receive greetings in the marketplaces. The reference to robes is a reference to the mark of earned accomplishment of a scribe. Uh, This is their earned distinction to have this robe. It's like the, the hood or the tassels of a graduation gown. It's a great accomplishment. Great accomplishment isn't bad in and of itself. But it's actually the recognition that's derived from that gown that they really want. They want greetings in the marketplace. They want to be able to walk into the most crowded part of the city, and in that vast crowd, they want to be recognized. They want to be recognized by everyone. And not only that, every place they walk, they want their recognition to continue. They're like the person who's always telling us about their accomplishments. You know this person. They're always telling you the degree that they have or the size of the company that they run or the number of people they supervise or the largesse of their portfolio. And none of this needs to be a part of every conversation, maybe some, but somehow from their lips it finds its way into virtually every conversation. They desire praise praise from others. Jesus says, look, notice, beware of making praise everything. 
The passage goes on. They desire power as well. They desire the, the best seats, literally the first seats or the first chair in the synagogues and the, again, first places of honor, the first seat at the table. And the best seat, that first reference there, uh, that's all about decision-making authority. They want to be in that highest chair, the chair that everyone looks to to get the final word. The first chair, well, that's the chair at the top of the org chart, and they want that. But they also want a place of honor, and uh, this uh, phrase is a little bit more domesticated. They want the first seat at Well, an event that would ordinarily be an equal celebration, a celebration around the table. It's not a chair so much that's at the top of the org chart. It's the chair that's in everyone's home who's a part of that org chart. They want the first seat at the dining room table as well. Now, power isn't bad in and of itself. And in fact, being honored at the dining room table isn't bad either. But they want their power to be everywhere. They want the power that they have in the organization to be the kind of power that bleeds across the lines and the kind of power that can touch you even the privacy of your own home. They want power at work, and they want power over every sphere of your own calling and authority. They expect to be able to exercise their authority everywhere. I'm the boss at work. So clearly I can tell you how to manage your affairs, how to parent, how to be a spouse, everything. And Jesus says, beware. Jesus says, look at them and beware of making power everything. And the final one is perfection. This is a bit of a moral classification, it seems. At least it seems uh, a bit more... uh, Uh, moral than the praise and the power. What they really want, uh, it's not simply perfection, but they want that appearance of perfection, the appearance of blamelessness such that they will never, ever be questioned. Verse 40 says that they devour widows' houses, uh, but the critical thing is that they excuse this behavior. They have a pretense. They have an appearance of perfect innocence, And they have that by making long prayers, so long that you totally forget that they're devouring the households of widows. That phrase, devouring of widows' houses, it actually refers to exploitation. It's exploiting wealthy people, widows in particular, because, well, perhaps it's just maybe easier for them to do that. You know, scribes, they weren't ordinarily wealthy. The Sadducees were always wealthy but not scribes. The scribes, they generally needed some kind of patron. Uh, They needed someone to uh, actually uh, help with their own operational expenses. And so exploiting the wealthy was something they were rather known for. We find references of this in the writings of the prophets. But they want you to know that whatever they do and however it looks, it's justified. They want you to know that they're blameless. Nobody should ever question their intentions or their actions. Making long prayers. Just think about that. It's not simply about the length of a prayer. That's about their unquestioned, irreproachable perfection. Only a blameless person could pray like that. 
and this person wants to be able to devour widows, but never pay the price for that, never to even be questioned about it. They want to appear perfect in every way. Jesus says, what? Beware, pay attention. Beware of making the appearance of perfection. Everything, praise, power, perfection. And the disciples would in many ways have very few objections with the praise and power and perfection of the scribes. This in many ways was culturally assumed. So it would be pretty shocking for Jesus to say what he says in verse 40. Look at it. He says that the scribes, these very individuals, will receive the greater condemnation, literally the greater judgment. These are the people, these are the people that God's especially hunting down. These aren't the ones who are at the top of the list of innocent ones. These are the ones who are at the top of the list of guilty ones. How do we account for this striking judgment? I think there's one way uh, that I like, and that's simply looking around at the religious leaders of our own day. We know religious leaders who are like this, who want nothing more than praise and power, and they want to be viewed as irreproachably perfect. We call these people televangelists, right? And these are the people who are always uh, at the head of megachurches. It's those guys, right? Well, no. The truth of the matter is praise, power, and the appearance of perfection are the kinds of things many leaders lust for. This is a temptation not just for leaders, not just religious leaders. This is a temptation for all of us. All of us want our accomplishments to be noticed by others, don't we? And we often want to succeed simply because it gets us so much attention. And we feel as though that's much needed attention. It's overdue attention. It's about time that people have noticed me. I'll show them you wait. It's about time that you're going to praise me. All of us are tempted by that. And all of us are also tempted uh, by the power to control not just our own lives, but the power to control the lives of others. We derive a great deal of pleasure and warm feelings from judging and controlling others, don't we? This isn't a foreign temptation any more than seeking for praise is a foreign temptation. And on a similar note, all of us want to be justified in everything that we do. How dare anyone question my motives or my intentions? It looked as though I did something bad. The motive's pure. It's your fault, not mine. The appearance of perfect blamelessness, well, that makes it a lot easier to indict somebody else. All of us want the appearance of perfection. This passage, as I said, it's not really about the heart of the scribes. It's really about the heart of Jesus who gives everything that he has, even his life, to deliver our heart from the punishment that it deserves. And when we're looking at the scribes, we need to be looking at our own hearts and see that in our hearts, there are a lot of similarities with the hearts of the scribes. And if we're looking at the scribes and we're not looking at ourselves, well, then we're not following the command verb of this passage, which is look, beware. How can you beware when you won't even look at your own heart? 
Now, Jesus shifts gears in verse 41. It's hard to tell 41 immediately follows this scene. Uh, Verses 38 through 40, Jesus saying, look at them and see your own heart. But now, Jesus, what's he doing? He is actually watching this widow. He's watching others. But here in 41 through 44, Jesus is saying to his disciples, look at her and see me. The outer courtyard had about 13 depository boxes. All these boxes would be around this courtyard, which was open to uh, men, women, and children. Uh, The depository boxes, they're not shaped uh, like uh, big rectangles. They're shaped like uh, shofars, like uh, ram's horns, like a trumpet that's uh, uh, bell down so that the narrow part is open at the top, uh, protects from thieves. And there would be a religious leader who is serving at each of these uh, depository boxes, and there'd be a conversation that would happen when someone comes to deposit their offering. And Jesus, he seems to be uh, watching and listening to these conversations. And Jesus, he, he sees that this woman, she just gives two small copper coins. That's what it says in verse 42. We know these to be uh, two uh, lepta. They're just tiny little coins. They're they're coins uh, that are the smallest coins in circulation. You know, we've already had a passage uh, recently about a denarius. A denarius was an ordinarily day laborer's pay. But a lepton, that's one-sixty-fourth of a denarius. And two of these together, what she deposited, that's about 20 minutes worth of a day laborer's time. And maybe Jesus, he's hearing the conversation that's being had at the depository box, and maybe he's also hearing the clinks of the coins as they slide down that tube. And Jesus can surmise very well that she's poor, not just by the small offering. There's something about her physical appearance as well. She looked poor. Jesus, he can even tell that she's a widow. Maybe she is completely alone as she makes her offering Now remember, though, this isn't an ethical tale. Be a widow, don't be a scribe. Be poor and not rich. Give out of poverty, not abundance. It looks like this, but don't be fooled. There's something that I want us to see about this widow that maybe you've skipped over. Jesus himself, he's watching her. What he tells the disciples to do, watch the scribes, Jesus, he's actually doing that here in this section of our passage. He is watching the widow. He's paying close attention to her. And what he says about her is startling. He says in verse 44 that she has put in everything that she had, all she had to live on. What do you think that means? Do you think this is, a, this is a verse that we can understand literally? Has she really put everything that she has, all that she has to live on? I believe we need to read this literally. Jesus, he's attentive. He knows what she's doing. And she really is giving everything she has, everything she has to live on. And what's really about to happen is death. How is she going to make it home? How is she going to eat that evening? How is she going to eat tomorrow? This this picture of the widow is remarkable because in this picture we're watching a woman who is doing something that she actually doesn't have to do according to the Old Testament law. The widow doesn't have to give everything. 
The law says that uh, how much a person can afford is actually critical to that part of equation of making an offering. Uh, Over and over again, we find in Leviticus that if a person can't afford a lamb, they bring two pigeons, Leviticus 5. And if they can't afford two pigeons, then a tenth of an ephah of flour, no oil, no frankincense, Leviticus 5. What you can and can't afford matters, Leviticus 14. The law is about mercy. The widow doesn't have to give her very last crumb of food. The law never compels a Jew to give everything that they have to live on and then to die. But you be the judge. You look at it this afternoon. What do you read there in verse 44? It's graphic. She seems to be giving her very life away. And I want us to consider that this widow is actually a picture of Jesus himself. What has Jesus already done three times before they arrive in Jerusalem? He said, I must be killed and rise again from the dead. He said that explicitly. And here I think he's doing the same thing. Look at the widow, what she does. Because what she's doing, that's me. Out of the abundance of the rich, which really is no abundance at all, And out of the abundance of the scribes, which is really no abundance at all, they actually give very little. In fact, we're not told in this passage scribes give anything at all. But the widow out of her poverty, she gives, well, she gives everything. But Jesus, Jesus actually brings these two things together. He is the one who is abundant over all. He's the Son of God. He is the Messiah of the Old Testament. He is the everlasting King. He is the one who has all praise and all power and all perfection. That's abundance. And yet, he is about to give like the widow. In a matter of days, he's not going to give just some. He's going to give it all. Everything that he has, even his very life. Now, verse 44 tells us the proper questions to ask about this passage, and that's where I want us to conclude. The heart of the scribes is bad. We, we, we get it. To them, praise, power, and the appearance of perfection, it's everything. That's their end-all objective. That's what they love. They live for this. But they're going to be condemned for this love because the heart of the scribe is bad. Your heart is bad, and my heart is bad. If praise, power, and perfection is everything, we're never going to get it. But all of these already belong to Jesus and Jesus alone. The praise that you and I get, that's going to be hollow. The power that you and I get, it's ultimately powerlessness. And the perfection that you and I claim to have, it's it's, it's counterfeit. But oh, the one who has these things in abundance... True praise, true power, true perfection. Will he lay it aside? The question isn't, why does the widow do this? The question, you know the question. Why does Jesus do this for you? You know you. And why does Jesus do this for me? You see, it's Jesus who has a heart that gives everything He gives everything for the glory of the Father, even his very life, and that's your own hope. 
He can deliver your heart from the punishment it deserves because he gives his heart wholly to the Father who punishes his son in place of you and in place of me. That's what this passage is about. And I want to encourage you this morning to go home and read this passage and and see if you glean this same thing. I want all of us to understand very well that we need Jesus moment by moment, second by second, and that he has given everything to be with us moment by moment and second by second. Beware. Look at your heart. And then watch your Lord and Savior who died for you on the cross. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, we ask that by your Spirit that you would replace our tired, worn-out affections with affection for Jesus Christ. Would you make that affection fresh, lively? Would you make that affection true? Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving Jesus that through him we might have life. Amen.